Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, very pleased to invite you to this second in a series of public lectures uh, organised by the new Department of Management, um, which now includes what used to be the Department of Industrial Relations at LSE. Um, we, we like to see this as a, a reverse takeover. <laughs> um, this evening, our speaker is John Monks. Uh, John spent much of his career at the Trade Union Congress. He was head of the organisation and industrial relations department for a number of years, became deputy general secretary, and then was elected general secretary in 1993. He filled this role very prominently for 10 years and then in 2003 was elected as General Secretary of the European <coughs> Trade Union Confederation which has 60 million members in uh, 38 European countries uh, and numbers growing all the time I think John has chosen as his topic tonight Europe migration and globalisation what about the workers. I'm sure this will be a very stimulating and challenging talk. It's a topic which is a burning issue uh, in Europe today. So without more ado, I'd like to hand over to John to deliver his address. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, Richard, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, Gratified to see such a, a good turnout. I understand I'm up against a former Greek Prime Minister who's given a lecture in a neighbouring part of the LSE, and uh, more importantly, up against Kiev versus Manchester United uh, on the uh, television. And uh, I'm not sure I wouldn't have been looking for another date myself had I <laughs> have, uh, uh, known that when I accepted Howard Davis's invitation to, uh, uh, to come along again come back, really, to the uh, London School of Economics. Well, there's very few words in the trade union dictionary that cause so much alarm as globalisation. Conveying a range of meetings, and nearly all of them are negative, the first one, the first meaning, is that jobs are emigrating from the richer parts of the world to the poorer parts of the world, to cheap locations, and the opening up and uh, economic uh, most impressive rise of the Asian countries producing goods and services much more cheaply on a vast scale uh, is perhaps seen as the main threat. A number of workers participating in the world economy has trebled since 1990 as walls came down and the world economy became a world economy for the first time for many years. We've seen the impact on, for a long time on industries like clothing, uh, textiles and footwear. But the range of industries and increasingly services that have been affected is widening rapidly. As technology makes them tradable across very large distances, and of course the so-called emerging economies uh, move up the value chain, often with uh, former students of the London School of Economics uh, somewhere in the vanguard of that. The second sense of what does globalization mean is large-scale immigration into uh, the richer parts of the world. 
workers who are willing and able uh, to work more cheaply, in some cases uh, more determinedly, uh, than the locals. And there's already evidence in the UK, which has been an open uh, society, and Adair Turner recently has pointed this out, that levels of migration are undoubtedly influencing and depressing real pay, or at least reducing pay increases at the level of unskilled work in particular, but also in some skilled trades, uh, particularly construction. Maybe a third meaning of globalization is the, what we're noticing, perhaps rather belatedly, the rising power of financial capitalism, um, as opposed to the older style industrial capitalism, with investment funds and banks and their provisional wing, private equity, and the uh, hedge funds hunting through the world for high returns, virtually nowhere where they can't go. And since the uh, collapse of communism, they've got the world at their feet. No competing ideology to uh, worry about. They're the new titans of the world economy. And they are, to put it mildly and diplomatically, unsentimental about the kind of practices that industrial capitalism came to appreciate, often reluctantly, uh, by the way, in the face of union and governmental power. The practices of making long-term commitments and building mutual obligations to workers, uh, these were the kind of things that uh, the big companies, the Ford Motor Companies of this world, came to do. And financial capitalism, by contrast, is often promiscuous capitalism, characterized by short-term exploitative relationships. And as we've seen in recent months, it can be highly unstable. Seeing Jack Dromey, just as I started that passage over there uh, uh, from Unite, I just think we've probably got a competition about who can use the rudest words about private equity. But uh, anyway, we, we continue our competition, Jack. Anyway, add all this together, and what do you get? I think first, and this is where people, not just trade unionists, should be worried, you get a sense of disillusion with politics. Politics has become subservient to the market. It's uh, widely held. It can't and it shouldn't interfere much in the economic sphere. And the orthodoxy, and it's certainly the case in this country, is the market must be free, that entrepreneurs must be given full license. Otherwise, they might emigrate and take the money and the jobs with them. By the way, in any case, uh, venerable British companies in a venerable institution like Lloyd's of London have emigrated recently their tax base to Bermuda. A uh, very patriotic gesture that was. UK taxes on large businesses and the super rich seem ever more to be a matter of voluntary donation rather than obligation. And you can see the tax base eroding, not just here, but in other European countries. And politics can't do much about it. It doesn't seem to be able to do much about it, or indeed about rising inequality or the increasing sell-off of British business to foreign ownership. On this last point, 50% uh, of British people who work for public limited companies now work for foreign-owned companies. That's a huge increase in the last uh, 20 years. And this sell-off of UK assets, or in some cases like Airbus, a sell-out of British interests, is watched rather helplessly by the government that can only say rather lamely, that it's a matter for shareholders. That's one consequence, a disillusion with politics. What can be done about it? Nothing can be done about it. You've just got to go with the flow. The second consequence of this is you can see it uh, more strongly in some countries than ours, a tide of protectionism. If 
this free trade is threatening our jobs, uh, then we should do something about it. Politics should do something about it. We saw this in the French referendum in, on the EU constitutional treaty. And it's evident in many other countries, too, with debates about national champions who must be protected from the operation of the financial markets. And indeed, in some cases, we see in calls for trade protection. Not especially evident in the UK. Our nationalists instead worry furiously about, major, uh, about rather, sorry, marginal changes in the UK's relations with the EU as expressed in the Reform Treaty, which was agreed last week in Lisbon. But when it comes to foreign takeovers of key companies, they're absolutely indifferent. They don't care. Uh, they don't care that what a famous Conservative Prime Minister called the family silver is being sold off, or what a famous Socialist uh, uh, Minister called the commanding heights of the economy are increasingly owned in France, Germany, the United States, uh, the Netherlands or China or the Middle East or Russia. Uh, they take very little interest in sovereign wealth funds. They're indifferent to this real challenge to uh, national sovereignty, preferring instead to tilt at the windmills of Brussels. Now, in other countries, it's a different story. Germany has recently put down some tight limits as to which foreign takeovers would be permitted. In France, uh, which has uh, got a theory of the uh, national champions in a number of sectors, and it would be unthinkable for some French companies to be allowed to fall outside French hands. Italy and Spain. Spain recently got London's airports, by the way. And, of course, the United States have their systems too, formal and informal, to protect key industries. I mean, even a relatively benign sovereign wealth fund like that of Dubai ran into big trouble in the United States with its purchase of a British company, P&O, uh, which happened to own some American ports. Had no trouble whatsoever in Britain, but it had trouble in America. And I note a, a German senior businessman was asked for his view about this British openness to foreign ownership. And he said, I'll tell you in 20 years if this unique experiment has worked. It's one hell of a risk. A third consequence of globalization is that there are some signs of rising concern about migrant workers, and there are some new restrictions uh, to come on workers from outside the EU in the British context. But I'm very proud to say uh, that the toleration of migration generally in Britain, and, uh, not, and particularly, I think, in the trade union movement, has been admirable. And the TUC and its affiliated unions, some of whom are represented here today, have been in the lead on this, have maintained a generous policy. It does reflect the fact that there's a lot of vacancies in the British labour market. It would be harder, I think, if unemployment were higher. Uh, but nonetheless, it's very much, I think, to the credit of the British labour movement of what has gone on. But there's other consequences of globalisation as well. A sense of unease, a sense that things are a bit beyond people's control. And despite the growth in prosperity, uh, prosperity, which is uh, uh, unevenly distributed for sure, but uh, is nonetheless very real, all the polls seem to show that these rising levels of insecurity and dissatisfaction, I'm not going into all the reasons for that, beyond my scope this evening, uh, but the economic and labour market context has some effects. The rise in inequality, uh, the fact that uh, people are feeling that jobs are insecure, that employers are shifting risk onto workers as far as pensions are concerned, that employers have got a short-term orientation, feeling no sense of uh, obligation 
for the people who work for them, all these things are contributing very much to that. And this is the, something of the background on a current debate in the European Union, not so much again in Britain, uh, but a concept of flexicurity, which is a concept that's been used to describe the very successful Danish story of changing the basis of their economy from agriculture and marine engineering to environmental engineering and uh, uh, high-grade services and a strong science base. And uh, this concept of flexicurity is already causing concern among a lot of workers that it's a device to abolish the regular job, a steady job, and replace it with a more temporary, precarious employment. Uh, the European Commission actually made some alarming statements recently about a job for life being a thing of the past. I was able to point out to the President of the European Commission, not in the European Commission, it's not uh, a job for life. It, a lot of people there with 40 years service uh, clocked up. Um, and the other bit of rhetoric that's, that they use is that if you've got a steady job, somehow you're an insider keeping out the outsiders, the young who are looking for work, the migrant who's come to this, uh, or some the country concerned, and maybe women uh, returning after uh, having uh, children out of the good jobs and making sure they stay in precarious work, as though to work in a low-paid, low-status uh, job is some kind of privilege. And again, uh, this has been uh, causing a lot of concern, in, particularly in some countries like France and Italy. Well, last week we actually agreed a joint analysis with Europe's employers, which actually corrects the balance and is against uh, zero-hour contracts and insecure working and the growth of these kind of practices. Uh, but that sense of insecurity has been encouraged already in some countries and damage has been done. Well, so far, I guess my lecture sounds like uh, the sequel to Les Miserables. Uh, Globalisations, all gloom and doom and perhaps can only be survived by a stoic uh, and a stiff upper lip. In fact, I've spent um, a significant part of my life telling trade unionists that actually globalization is not Les Miserables Part 2. Uh, and although it's got worrying features, it's got positives too. Now firstly, and, uh, Europeans need to be aware that globalization was invented by Europe for Europe. Uh, I've mentioned this, Richard seen me do this before, but I found an old school atlas of my father's dated 1907. And I opened it, looked at a map of the world, and there were only six countries in 1907 that were not European, were not European colonies, or were not former European colonies. Now, come on, a bit of university challenge, LSE. Uh, name me those six countries. Well, shout out. They weren't, they're not European, they're not European colonies, and they're not former European colonies. Argentina? Spanish colony. Thailand, one. Russia was a European country, is a European country. Japan. Japan, two. Three. Abyssinia, I think it was called, but you're quite right. So we got three. Liberia. 
could be a seventh, actually, Liberia. But it, it was an American creation uh, for freed slaves and so on. But it's not on my... It wasn't... It didn't, it, you could be right, technically right. Yeah. Liberia it makes it seven. No, uh, not including China, because in 1907, the coast of China, all the uh, major estuaries were all colonies of uh, European powers or the United States or Japan. Tibet, correct. Sorry? <laughs> Tibet's not a country. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, okay, right. Uh, I don't know what it was. What was it in 1907? Always been part of China, has it? All right, okay. Well, I'll, before I tread any farther, maybe we substitute Liberia for Tibet, I say diplomatically, and uh, keep my list of six uh, going. Japan? Bhutan. 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 No, I don't, I, I'm not sure about Bhutan. I, but I, anyway, you've got... You've got, uh, you've got four, and the two you haven't got uh, are Korea, which was a colony of Japan, I think, and others at the time, um, and uh, Persia stroke Iran. I think, which, I think someone shouted that. Did they? Oh, sorry. But not okay, very loud. Right, didn't it? Yeah, didn't it? Okay. And Persia uh, as well. But the point I'm really making, apart from testing your history and geography, is that only a hundred years ago, that was what the world looked like. That's not so long ago, is it? Uh, the world was clearly dominated by Europe, and for Europe to complain now because others are doing better uh, is rightly seen as gross hypocrisy, I think, in other parts of the world. And it's not that, you, that Europe, actually, that Europe's doing badly. On the contrary, Germany is the world's number one exporter. It's got a huge trade surplus. That's not the case in the States or in the United Kingdom. Uh, the Euro area uh, countries have a balanced trade position as a group and are holding their own in the face of uh, rising competition. Living standards have soared in most countries, not least in Central and Eastern Europe. One of the great successes at the present time are the growth rates in Poland and the others. In the UK, real earnings have risen by 24% in the last uh, 10 years. And uh, with all its problems, the EU is an economic uh, superpower. As President Hu Jintao mentioned recently in his speech to the Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's simply untrue to suggest that all globalization is bad news. And there are currently more winners than losers from the opening up of markets in the past 17 years or so. And many of them are in Europe and in Britain. Indeed, I think the greatest achievement so far of the European Union is the way it's spread prosperity in Europe. Poor countries have caught up with their richer neighbours. Italy was the first to do that uh, it, uh, with the, uh, uh, in the context of the old common market, caught up with France and Germany. Ireland's been a spectacular performer in the, since 1989 in Europe, now on some indices surpassing uh, the United Kingdom. Spain is a big star at the present time. And the new, new member states who came in in 2004 are showing high growth rates and rapidly rising living standards, attractive markets now for other economies as well. 
We don't know quite how it's done. There's some transfer funds, but they're not that big in terms of uh, their effect on GDP. Uh, we know the single market has an effect. Um, but in any way, the, it's clear that EU membership has been a huge uh, benefit for the new and the old member states. And the new member states, by the way, are not just uh, growing economically, but also democratically. And that's rather a contrast with the countries to the east of the EU, uh, like the Ukraine or Belarus, where the influence of Russia remains very powerful. And Russia, at the moment, anyway, is not promoting the creation of strong, independent, democratic neighbours, which has been the approach of the European Union. And just imagine for a moment, if there was no EU, which is what a lot of people in this country really want, what the pressures would be in the Baltic states, even in Poland, in the face of uh, a more assertive Russian approach that we're seeing at the present time. Uh, it would be uh, an area where Russian foreign policy would be clearly dominant. And the EU has been a, a sense of force for greater equality in a world that generally has been going in the other direction, towards inequality. But just as the negative trends and concerns I began with don't mean that globalization is a disaster, you can't say it's an unalloyed good either. There's a dark side, particularly evident in the developing world, where there's in some parts of that there are bleak pictures of child, sometimes slave labor, falling health and safety practices, grinding toil, exploitation and poverty pay. And there's losers too in the West, the poorly educated, the unskilled, the workers in manufacturing and, and those parts of manufacturing and services which are emigrating. And then there's the older workers who just find it hard to learn new tricks. And we see uh, both faces of globalization and we have to make a judgment about what the right conclusions are. And I think that Europe and the West have still got some time to shape the direction of globalization much more purposefully and fairly, but we haven't probably got much time uh, to do that. Now, currently in the world and European trade union movement, the new international TUC, which is a fusion of the old ICFTU and the World Confederation of Labour, is leading the argument for a social dimension to globalization, which currently is very weak. It's true we have the International Labour Organization, which has its 90th anniversary in two years' time. And that's done a lot of good work in raising social and labour standards. The reconstruction of Western Europe after World War II was based on ILO standards, and standards on the welfare state, on public services, on strong independent trade unionism and collective bargaining. And in turn, actually, the ILO owed much to the ideas of the leading British trade unionists of the day, like uh, Ernest Bevin and Walter Citrine. But today the ILO is rather marginalized by other bodies concerned with global governance, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization in particular. They don't believe in including social and labor standards in their work. And of course, those of you from the developing world will probably know too that uh, those standards are often seen as some kind of European duplicitous protectionism with traditionally strong uh, advanced economies trying to use labor standards, for example, to reduce one of their few competitive advantages, that is cheap uh, labor. For many of them, and uh, India leads the way on some of this, ILO standards linked to trade amount to European and perhaps North American protectionism. I don't know how we're going to get around this problem unless there's a concerted effort uh, to do so. And at the moment, 
the will is certainly lacking, to do, uh, lacking the will to do that. But I do know that the EU needs to do more in that particular area. At our recent Congress of the ETUC last May, we signaled the intention to mobilise to make the case for an EU which promotes trade unionism, not just in Europe, but in the world. It already does that in Central and Eastern Europe and in the neighbouring countries to Europe, both on the north side of Africa and uh, the countries to the east of the EU. But uh, we are arguing the case that strong trade unions have the effect of sharing productivity gains much more fairly than any other mechanism, and they act as a break on inequality. And in many parts of the world, they need encouragement and support, and I think this should become one of the key factors of both European and British foreign policy. And if we've got to do that, we've got to start in the EU, which is by some way the most social uh, part of the world, although we're struggling, even in Europe, to make sure that social progress keeps up with the developing single market. And the objective of harmonising the conditions in Europe has not been accomplished. Uh, that is uh, pretty clear. Uh, the EU has been pushing forward a single market very strongly to remove barriers to competition. Uh, but uh, the free movement of goods, services, capital and labour uh, is certainly operating, um, but it risks sometimes being seen more as a threat than as a force for progress. And this result of, the, of a failure to ensure that social progress keeps up uh, with the other developments, I think is reflected in this loss of support that we're seeing for Europe in uh, the trade union world, not just in Britain, but in other uh, countries too. And it could be a factor behind a rise in uh, nationalist, protectionist and xenophobic uh, groups as well. Now the whole European adventure has never been a straightforward process and it's had many difficult periods. Uh, but it, I do think that while enlargement has been a big success in many respects, moves to deepen European integration are not making the same progress. And if you're British, we understand that because you can see it in the reaction of many people in the UK to the EU reform treaty, a rather modest uh, document as I described it earlier. Yet from a trade union viewpoint, Europe's still got many, many strengths. The region of the world with the highest proportion of the workforce in trade unions, the strongest welfare states and public services, universal democracy as a key component. You've got to be a democracy to be in the European Union and the social well-being and fundamental rights of people at its centre seems to me to be very important. 493 million people within this single market, by the way. Huge potential if that potential can be harnessed in some kind of combined way. But we won't do that without a strong social dimension. Now, there is um, a debate still going on about whether Europe's really got a social dimension or a model at all. And the UK government, Labour government, has been among those who question whether in 27 different countries the concept of one model makes much sense that, say, given the differences between Sweden and Bulgaria, Italy and Ireland, for example, how can one social Europe be built? Often this seems to us in the European TUC to be an argument to justify shutting down any further regulation at the European level. It's being used too to justify the unjustifiable, like the UK having an opt-out from the EU's Charter of Fundamental Rights, the express reason for which, by the way, is to protect 
the trade union laws, anti-trade union laws of Mrs. Thatcher and Mr. Tebbit, uh, who, uh, which were carried in the early 1980s, and to deny UK workers the same opportunities of representation and consultation and engagement uh, that uh, are the best European standards. But there is a European social model and a substantial one at that. It exists in the health and safety area where EU law, by the way, often reflecting UK practice, in this instance we are at the top of the league, um, to, uh, which stops, aims to stop competition between in the single market on the basis of some countries getting away with unsafe or unhealthy working conditions. Very important step. It exists in the area of equality law where the principles of equal pay, maternity and paternity rights, non-discrimination are enshrined in EU law. Nobody can discriminate against people for a whole range of issues. It exists in information and consultation rights and in European Works Council. There's now 800 companies, more than 800 actually, that have established uh, such uh, councils. It exists in laws to protect what used to be known as atypical workers, but are more and more typical, part-timers, temporary workers, fixed-term workers. Uh, and at the moment, there's a hard battle going on to try and extend protection to temporary agency workers who make up quite a big part of the British uh, labour force at the present time. And the social model exists too in relation to migrants and the posted workers' directive gives some protection to the migrant worker and what terms and conditions they can expect in the single market of Europe. And these rights, and more by the way, are well set out in a recent pamphlet by Stephen Hughes, MEP, and David Lee, an old colleague of mine at the TUC. Now most of all, however, the reason for a social Europe is we've got a single labour market crossing 27 countries. And indeed, if you add in Norway and Switzerland, uh, it's 29, if Liechtenstein, it's 30. So the, uh, they've signed up to this single market. And we are saying that if there's a single market in labour, then some rules, the minimum traffic rules, are very, very important. And that we need, therefore, to go further with social regulation. I mentioned temporary agency workers, but on our agenda are rights European-wide to training, extending consultation rights for workers affected by change, strengthening the worker role in the European Works Councils, and effective control of working time, uh, which is dangerously long in some countries and is an area where competition is permitted. Now, I'm taking some encouragement from the current EU debates uh, on the agenda in Lisbon last week when they agreed the uh, treaty. There was also a paper entitled Succeeding in the Age of Globalization. And that recognized that Europe's social realities are changing and that more effective means are needed, and I quote here, of ensuring rights to employment, education, social protection across Europe, and indeed outside Europe, because I think the European model should be spread and exported. I'll be interested in some of your views from outside Europe on that later, because I think it's the right way for societies to go. So, on this whole issue, Richard, of uh, globalisation, Europe, and what about the workers? Uh, am I an optimist or am I a pessimist? Candide or Jeremiah? I guess my rather lame reply is neither. Uh, but I'm aware that the trade union job is always to make the best of any situation and that the key to making globalization work properly is a strengthening of the role and membership of trade unions across the world 
and also effective joint governmental actions across the world and at European level too. If it's all left, as it could be, to the forces of enterprise and capital, the results, I prophesy, will be rising protectionism, disenchantment with democracy, and an opportunity for the re-emergence of strong anti-democratic forces. Globalization must not be left to the entrepreneurs alone. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, John, for a very stimulating and wide-ranging lecture. Uh, John's agreed to take questions. Do you want to take a few at a time? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Um, there are roving mics, I think, so if you can put, indicate um, if you want to speak. I was told there would be roving mics. Here there's a roving mic roving. <laughs> there's someone in the second row, then a lady in the front. Um, one in the third row back there. We'll take those three as a starter. Oh, um, hello, John. Uh, I'm from China. I'm doing a master program at RFC. Um, my question is that you mentioned the uh, protectionism among the uh, developing countries like India or uh, Latin American countries. Do you think is it a good thing for their like their own? countries like domestic market because it's it's like protect market and promote the like domestic industrial growth then eventually lead to a like economic growth that's yes mr chairman i'd like to ask uh, mr monks about um, developments in global trade unionism um, i did hear some time ago that i think the Transport and General um, Union was thinking of amalgamating or building links with unions in the United States. Um, I just wondered what potential is for this to build um, a global movement. There was someone back there. No, 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 no. Oh, thank you. My question is not unrelated to the previous question. It relates to the falling rates of unionisation and whether or not the moves to consolidate the peak international trade unions is a reflection of the failure of of unions to meet the challenge of falling rates of unionisation. I've seen a few hands for the second round, I think. How much answer those? Yeah, uh, well, all uh, very bright questions, actually, very pertinent ones. Uh, look, I can see the case for protectionism in a developing economy. Um, I think uh, the Asian economies would not have uh, grown like they have grown had they have had the kind of uh, free trade principles that were, for example, pressed on Latin America and to some extent on Africa by the uh, IMF uh, and others uh, and thereby their, in, their own industries were tended to be destroyed and multinational companies completely dominated it. Uh, so I, I'm not 
religious free trader. Uh, say I might have been to a Manchester school many years ago, but I'm not a member of the Manchester School of Free Trade Economics. Um, the, I do think, though, there comes a stage when uh, reciprocation and recognizing that if you're playing powerfully in the world, and China is certainly doing that, uh, that you've got to be very sensitive to what others are doing. And uh, the argument the European Union has got with China at the moment is about an undervaluation of the currency in particular. Um, as, I mean, the, it's only, I think, three or four years ago where the trade balance between China and the EU was about even. Uh, now it's massively in China's favor. Um, and that's leading to calls from European producers uh, to, uh, for protectionism, which I don't think anybody wants to do. But the, uh, the currency issue is a big one uh, at the present time. And uh, the, the, you know, if you're sitting holding euros or pounds, actually, at the present time, uh, with the dollar weak and being allowed to weaken, it reduces American debt if it does weaken, uh, the, and makes our exports more competitive, uh, you, the, 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 the position of China's currency as the Chinese economy becomes more and more and more important as it will uh, becomes very uh, controversial and difficult. But I'd say, so am I, I can see the case for some protectionism, but after a certain point, I think a, a, an economy should open up. However, I don't go all the way with the British government and say it should open up that you, can, you don't care who owns what. Uh, there comes a point, I think, where by the, there is a sense of the national interest. It's not easy to define it. I mean, when the French were asked to define it, they picked Danone, uh, who make yogurt uh, out as a national champion, um, and so on. Uh, they're finding it difficult to know what should be uh, open and what, uh, and what they want to try and uh, keep a grip on. But having said that, I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm rather more critical of British managers than, and uh, owners than I am of uh, uh, any governmental body. The ease with which they sell out to the highest bidder without any regard for who that might be is a, uh, uh, something that is almost unique in the advanced world. And I think we also recognise, I don't know whether other trade union colleagues would agree, that some of the newer managements are better than the British ones that they replaced. Uh, on a quite uh, indeed commitment, long-term commitment, more commitment to the community, and so on. There's something rotten in the management philosophy, if you can't even call it a philosophy, that exists in many British companies, which is what's my share bonus looking like, and how am I getting on, and where will I be in six months' time, and so on. The sense of commitment, uh, which the great entrepreneurs used to uh, uh, demonstrate, uh, and some of the current ones do, uh, is simply not there. It's absent. And it's not so absent in some of these uh, other countries. Um, global trade unions, well, it should really, Jack Jomish should probably really answer that, but the, um, the talks between Unite and the United Steelworkers of uh, America, uh, which I think are progressing uh, quite well, whether it's to amalgamation, I don't know. Uh, but certainly for a closer alliance. And there's quite a lot of that going on in the world at the, uh, the present time, to, um, particularly where people are in the same industries and services with the same employers to a large extent. The unions are looking at how they can uh, get together uh, more effectively. Whether it comes to amalgamation, sharing the money and all the rest of it, well, I don't know. I'd be very, very interested to see 
how far that, those talks do get. But it's an important uh, development, that's for sure. <clears throat> uh, there's others as well. I think Unite and uh, IG Metall in Germany from time to time have, uh, have sought to build a similar kind of process. Uh, the uh, third question was uh, about the trade union numbers and declining membership. It's, uh, it's not universal. There are exceptions, but the general trend is uh, down. Uh, that's, uh, that's for sure. Um, and w there's all sorts of uh, initiatives around to try and reverse that in some countries with more success than others. I, for example, in Holland last week, um, and there's uh, a very similar economy in many ways to, uh, to Britain. Um, their trade union membership now is beginning to grow quite strongly and based on an individual uh, kind of a sense of the union as your agent uh, is what they have been, uh, been pressing. Our membership, of course, has been going up a bit as well, though reflecting uh, probably increases in the number of public sector employees rather than anything else, and it's not been going up significantly in the private sector. But it's, uh, I mean, given the degree of uh, job insecurity in some sectors of the private sector, given the fact that uh, many of the uh, jobs are now much more professional graduate jobs than traditionally was the case, I, I think it's 50% already of 21-year-olds in Scotland uh, are at university or the equivalent. Um, or just finished their course. Uh, it's not quite there in England and Wales, but it's on the way there. That's the government target. And so it's a different world, and unions who grew up in the mines and the mills and the big factories uh, having to adjust, are adjusting, I think, to the new world of uh, work. It's different than it was before. Public sector remains a union heartland, uh, but uh, outside that is that perhaps where our major challenges lie and there's some challenges in the uh, public sector seeing Nigel de Grucci over there from the teachers and teachers are the best unionised major occupational group in, any, uh, in just about every country around the world it's, uh, it's just a fact uh, transport workers generally are very well organised too both categories know that they're at risk uh, and they need somebody to turn to if they uh, a train driver or something has an accident or a pilot or a teacher gets in uh, some disciplinary problem uh, with one of the uh, pupils. So some are doing well, uh, most are not doing well. A uh, particular worry is Central and Eastern Europe at the moment, um, uh, which is sort of very American uh, in its business philosophy, um, but the, uh, there's a lot of attention, a lot of work going on to try and address the problem. There's one in the front. Did I see one at the back as well on that side? No? Well, there's one at the front. And I see two, three. I see several over there. Maybe we might need a third there. But let's go from the backwards to up. Oh, yes. Um, Linda Corsher, LSE. Um, uh, what I caught of your talk and, and the, gen the, the debate anyway, generally, in the public sphere is about uh, labour liberalisation within the EU. Um, that's generally, it's taken, that's what we're talking about with labour migration. Um, and that's irrever irrevocable in its own way as members of the EU. Um, but what doesn't get talked about um, is the liberalisation of labour 
that the commitments to labour liberalisation that are occurring through trade agreements and, for instance, through Mode 4 of GATS, this is labour from outside the EU into the EU. For instance, Mode 4 of GATS as a WTO agreement will apply to 150 countries. Um, it's the prime objective of the Indian government in the EU-Indian Free Trade Agreement. It, uh, without without li labour liberalisation, there would be no free trade agreement with India. So it's that important. Um, that, that will also be irrevocable um, when it's in a trade agreement, just as um, la uh, labour liberalisation within the EU is uh, by virtue of being a member of the EU. Um, you, you optimistically talk uh, the union um, vision of spreading uh, trade unionism and labour organisation from Europe outwards, but you admit in your last answer that unionism um, in, in Europe is declining, certainly is in this country, and the sort of la uh, labour migration that we're talking about, both within the EU and certainly the labour liberalisation that I'm talking about from without... Uh, from outside the EU um, being put into trade agreements must inevitably affect labour standards. And there is also the crossover with um, social effects of migration, which are not all positive. So um, it's quite likely that uh, there, there's a lot of negative effects there and uh, a diminution of, of labour standards from such labour liberalisation rather than your optimistic view of spreading trade unionism from the EU to other countries. My concern is the absolute lack of information about this whole level of labour migration, the, the commitments that are being made in trade agreements to labour liberalisation from outside the EU. There's no debate in this country. Parliament doesn't talk about it. Parliament's not aware of it. There's no awareness raising, there's no media debate about it, and the unions don't raise any awareness uh, about it. And whether it's good or bad, it must be that people have a right to know that these commitments are being made when it's going to affect their society so much. Um, Labour like lib uh, liberalisation from 150 other countries from without, outside of the EU. There is just no debate about it. Surely it's okay, the trade you. unions. Yes, I, yes. I think you made the point. Surely it's the trade unions' job to be but raising uh, that debate and allowing people to know about it. Um, a couple from this side, yeah. Yep. Thank you, Chairman. My name is Nigel de Grishy. I'm a retired teacher trade unionist. I was glad <laughs> that John mentioned the public sector in answer to the first set of questions, because I don't think you'd mentioned the public sector before, John. So I would like to invite John to extend his thoughts a bit further, because I think so far we've been fairly successful in protecting public sector workers against the, the evil, some of the evil forces of globalisation. I just wonder how, long, how much longer we can do that. And there's other areas I think where public sector workers might be affected, in, for example, in the area of qualifications, particularly in respect of being able to work in certain public services. So I'd just like you... Perhaps, John, if you don't mind, to develop any thoughts you might have in that particular area. Thank you. Hi, hello. Um, Mr. Monks, you mentioned that uh, you think globalization should be shaped by politics. But today, political left seems to, be, to have problems to speak with one voice. 
What do you think are the main challenges to trade union solidarity and as well to cooperation of trade unions with uh, socio-democratic political movement? Okay. Um, the, the first... There will be time for one more round after this, or, or you... No, I've got... Uh, yeah, yeah. Fine, yeah. good, good. Just, I'll be pretty quick then on some of this. Um, I'm not familiar with all the 150 uh, trade agreements, but just to say that the... Uh, draw the attention of the audience to two things. One is, I think it's better to have an agreement through the WTO on trade than not, uh, because uh, if you don't have one with the, uh, uh, a multilateral one, then you're all negotiating individually with uh, the United States of America or China or the European Union, uh, and you're rather in an unequal bargaining position. I just make that the multilateral thing and the very difficult to do that because, as you mentioned, India, Brazil and others, South Africa, uh, much more assertive than used to be uh, the case, and rightly so, in looking after their interests. Um, their interests include uh, a belief that the, uh, what the European Union do, by the way, in bilateral deals is insist on uh, labor standards. They are uh, generally in the agreements that they make. Uh, the ILO standards are a condition um, and that's uh, something that was a triumph for uh, the, uh, my predecessor and uh, the then General Secretary of the ICFTU, Bill Jordan. They got the EU to do that and that's still there. Clearly, the, uh, there's a huge argument with India about child labour all the time um, and nobody doubts the democracy and so on in, uh, uh, in India. Uh, but the, this cultural difference uh, has, has come to the point of uh, uh, people not going to trade with India because of it. And the decision has been made uh, that they will trade with India but continue to press and raise it and so on. So, but it's a, it's a difficult issue. Similarly with China, um, in some of the labor practices that have, uh, are reported in China, which do certainly do not. And so, China is not uh, uh, the ILO standards are not fully in the agreement with China but there's no doubt about that that China simply won't accept them for itself and is looking for liberalization uh, measures outside it so but, but I'm not making the point that I don't think China is all powerful in these things I think still the, uh, the West is the most powerful uh, force in this and have done many things to China and India over the years uh, in the interests of themselves, ourselves, uh, which uh, can't uh, be too critical always of the developing world trying to develop practices and protect, protect practices which benefit them. Nigel's point about the, uh, the public sector, it, yeah, it was an omission, I think, not to say uh, something about that. I mean, the public sector is an area, by definition, outside the single market. Um, uh, although uh, it's fraying in many ways through uh, public-private partnerships, privatizations, uh, pressure for commercialization, uh, certain aspects in British terms of the choice agenda, uh, and modeling up what is private and public and so on. Uh, and, um, I mean, we've already got uh, some protections in the European Union uh, for the public sector, but I would say not enough. Um, and the current 
one of the nice things about this reform treaty that was agreed last week is there's a commitment to public, uh, the public sector and public services as an exception to the single market, actually as a principle of the uh, treaty. I'm not sure we'd get that uh, in a UK context uh, at the present time, but we've, it was got uh, uh, in the European one. Um, in terms of controlling globalisation, and I mentioned governmental action and coming together, trade union solidarity is also uh, uh, extremely important. And uh, things like global councils with big companies, we've got the European level works councils in 800 companies, we could get them in 600 more if the unions uh, wanted them. Uh, so we could have 1,400 companies covered by the European Works Council, which at least is, uh, uh, is 493 million people contained within some uh, kind of uh, process, which uh, uh, means that things are not just done in the spirit of a crisis, uh, which is what they're often done at the present time in the spirit of an instant dispute. We need to be able to react, react quickly to people's disputes and give them whatever help we can. And uh, this is why, by the way, this Charter of Fundamental Rights would have uh, been a very good thing for Britain, because it would have loosened our ability to give solidarity support, which is tightly constrained at the present time. Um, anyway, that, that's, that's what the red line is designed to stop. And uh, whether it will, in the end, stop it, I don't know. But the, uh, that certainly was its purpose. But uh, trade unions have got a major part to play in, uh, in, in civilising globalisation. Two over there and one here. Um. Is the football kicked off? <laughs> Do you want a quarter day after this? Yes, yeah. people are voting to you. So you're the lucky last three. <laughs> Very lucky indeed. Um, migration is one of your key words in your header up there. Um, however, integration is not one. Now, I think that integration is just as important as migration and that the two should go hand in hand. Uh, my question is, what can and what are trade unions doing to facilitate this integration and to decrease social conflict, um, especially seeing as immigrants are often seen as a tool for a re trade union revitalization? Which steps can the government, uh, perhaps trade unions, can make in order to balance between immigrants' participation in the welfare state and their contribution to it? Thanks. Sorry, could you just, just say the first bit of that again? Just, I was just tuning into your answer. Which steps can the government, and perhaps trade union in particular, can make in order to balance between uh, participation of immigrants in the welfare state and contribution to it? I'm not sure I understand. Which, Which steps? I, I understand yes. that. I'm just, I just, I haven't got the point of the question. Is it include, uh, inclusion in the welfare state? To get people yes. included in the welfare state. Yes. Immigrants and migrants and. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. I can understand the question. I'm not sure I can give you an answer. But, uh, <laughs> and this, You indicated some sympathy for protecting the national interest, but you were sarcastic about how the French defined it. How would you define it? And what constraints would you put on 
private equity funds, sovereign funds, hedge funds, making foreign takeovers of British companies. Okay. Chairman, that's uh, Immigration and migration, um, yeah, they're not the same thing. I realize that. Um, and uh, the, uh, I think reactions to the two subjects are quite interestingly diff different on some migrants, quite good immigration, not so sure about. You saw this figure the other day that Britain might have 80 million people, 25% uh, more, uh, in relatively short period of time. The, I mean, I, there's got to be, uh, I mean, I've never been an open, complete open door in a country that's already overcrowded. Um, I think it's one of the most difficult things to uh, regulate and there's injustices uh, abound all over the place uh, all the time uh, about it. But having said that, generally, I think uh, Britain has uh, done quite well at managing, managing the issue. It's a difficult issue in some uh, parts of the country uh, which are not necessarily always very well articulated. What are the unions doing? Um, I think doing quite a, quite a lot. Uh, this sort of comes into the territory of the second question. I mean, firstly, there's very vigorous campaigns against the nationalist and racist organisations in all the areas concerned. Uh, if the British National Party raises its uh, standard, the unions get stuck in. Um, we've always done that wherever they came. Looking again at Jack, involved uh, years ago in London, on those kind of uh, campaigns. And um, the TUC, uh, I mean, I remember going up um, uh, to when Oldham and Bradford had had uh, race uh, problems. We were there to organize the unions across the community and so on. And we put a lot of effort into that, and we've had quite a lot of success uh, on it. That's not necessarily the answer, but the building contacts across communities has always been a union issue and treating immigrants and migrants as equal. When they get here, they're equal. They, sit, they are not second-class citizens. They are uh, first-class, and they deserve the same wages, conditions, protections, labor law, and so on. Illegal immigrants, more difficult. But legal, uh, legal migrants, legal immigrants, uh, I think uh, you, you deserve whatever Britain offers its own citizens uh, should be extended to them. Um, the welfare state, clearly there's certain things that you've got to qualify for through paying the national insurance and, and so on. Uh, but in uh, a number of areas, uh, there's already uh, fairly easy entitlements. Other areas like benefits, I know it gets, uh, it gets tougher. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I, I'm not sure of the details at the moment of social security law, but it seems to me... Uh, that the, uh, the, the British system uh, is a reasonable one, if not the most generous. Private equity, um, I mean, has uh, exploded into uh, our world and the statistic that they own one-sixth of the uh, private sector uh, in Britain at the present time was an astonishing statistic. Um, and uh, it came to light through some ruthless uh, pruning and particularly with somebody who bought a bird's eye fish plant and uh, somebody then who uh, restructured, uh, restructured uh, reduced substantially 2,300 jobs in the AA. Um, that was Permira, one of the biggest. Uh, but we found, in, uh, after a quick look, uh, a wide range of others. 
who are extremely ruthless uh, on uh, not care, they remote owners uh, and the deal that they've got which is they borrow to buy they offset the interest on the borrowing against their tax um, end up paying very little indeed uh, and doing very little indeed uh, other than reducing costs <clears throat> I have to say and to be fair there are some who are better than that uh, and I think we've found that out um, there are some who take a, a kind of a management consultant role in improving the management of hitherto dozy companies. Uh, I'm not going to name any names because where they may be, it might be good in one situation, they asset strip ruthlessly in the other, in another situation. But uh, it's not always the same story in every case. We, I think, uh, appreciate that. And, uh, but it does seem to me that the, um, uh, I don't know what effect the more, ex or more difficult to get uh, lo uh, loan capital is going to have on private equity I don't think any of us do uh, but the day when a private equity actually can't sell on a business and have a, I'll be watching Alliance Boots very interestingly at the present time uh, which was a KKR deal uh, the, the minute they get left with a company that they can't sell on, uh, then that's the minute that private equity might go out of fashion extremely quickly but the, uh, hope, you know, hope with no company has to bear the, uh, particularly a company as important as Alliance Boots, has to bear the costs of uh, their failure in that way. But at the moment, the, um, we take a lot of convincing. I think looking at Jack Dromey and I were at uh, some uh, meeting together on it. Uh, we take a lot of convincing about this model. Uh, it seems to us to be uh, short-term, get rich quick, and exit. Um, Although, as I say, there are a few deals and a few companies who are probably a bit better than that. Well, thank you very much, John. We're delighted you were able to come to LSE and have given us such a stimulating lecture and have answered a very wide range of questions. Thank you also to the audience for turning up and keeping the, the debate lively. I've been asked to remind you or inform you that the next lecture in this series is same time, same place on the 31st of October which will be given by Richard Noddy who I suppose is one of the knowns of private equity on the topic of uh, globalising capital markets um, so we'll see some of you at least here but once again thank you very much John and thank you for coming